Good morning. If you have a copy of the scriptures, turn to 3 John. And while you're turning there, let me say welcome. I'm Nate Aiken, one of the ministers here uh, and excited to be in the pulpit. Uh, if you're a guest, we're so thankful that you would take time out on a Sunday morning to be with us. Uh, please make sure we get a chance to, to meet you and greet you. I also want to say a special word of welcome to the rising third graders who are, as a group, uh, coming to the worship service for the first time. We're so glad that you're here. Uh, we believe this worship service is a very, very important time. In fact, uh, this, this hour or, you know, depending on who's preaching a little more than an hour, uh, we think is, is the most important hour of your week. In fact, the Bible teaches us that the gathering of the church is central to who the people of God are. This is where we come together to worship the God who has created us, who has loved us so amazingly in the sending of His Son. Uh, and Paul tells us this gathering is where people will come in and they will say that God is truly among you. And so we believe this is vital to, to what it means to be a Christian. Now, to you third graders, just know it is likely you're not going to pick up everything that's happening in here. But guess what? Your parents don't either. And neither do I. Uh, in fact, we all need help. But just know the little bit you do pick up along the way we think is vitally important to who who you are and who we want you to be. And so we're so thankful that you're here. Uh, we had a kind of a cupcake special between services for those rising third graders. Uh, we have a two-year-old, so we weren't invited. I was trying to figure out if she could pass off as a third grader. Uh, didn't happen. This week, we are going to conclude our series called Devoted. We've been looking at the devotions of the church in Acts 2, the, the first church, the church at Jerusalem. They were devoted to the gospel, to the Bible, to, to prayer. They were devoted to the church or to one another uh, and to evangelism. We saw that last week. But the ultimate end of possessing and then passing on these devotions is the glory of God. What we just read about in Isaiah chapter 6. This is what we are to be about as the people of God. We desire for the glory of God to, to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea. And the primary way we see this is through our missions effort, through what we call, particularly in Baptist churches, cooperation among churches to send out gospel workers for the glory of God to spread across the earth. And we see this through cooperation among us as members, but also cooperation with other churches and missionaries as we help brothers and sisters and sister churches in the mission of God. We have seen that these devotions are certainly for our good, but these devotions are also supposed to be for the good of others. And again, the ultimate end of them, as with all things, is to be the glory of God. So as we promote this sort of devotion, a devotion to the Creator who is worthy of praise among the nations, a primary way that we can do that individually as Christians and corporately as a church is by being those who imitate this book of 3 John. Now I want to give just a couple of introductory comments about 3 John, but before we turn our attention there, I just want to ask a question by a show of hands. If you can remember, who in this room has ever heard a sermon on 3 John? Raise your hand. Okay, so for the vast majority of you in this room, this sermon on 3 John is going to be both the best and worst sermon you've ever heard on 3 John. But it is an incredible book. 3 John is actually the shortest book in all the Bible. There's only 219 words in the Greek. In fact, uh, Kristen Getty, who reads for the ESV app, it takes her two minutes to read this book. It is also the only letter that John addresses to an individual. We're going to see who this individual is, a man named Gaius, in a minute. 
Because it is so short, though, some scholars have called it a neglected book. And yet it's an important one that possesses the themes of, of love and of truth and of a good testimony. This theme of cooperation among Christians and among churches, this theme of the support or as we will see, the lack of support for missionaries and gospel workers. So this book has something for the church as a whole. This book has something for aspiring pastors and missionaries. This book has something for those who will support missionaries. It really has something for every Christian. And yet my father, who has written two commentaries on 3 John, says this, the church has neglected 3 John for too long and has done so at its own expense. My prayers, brothers and sisters, is that we will not be at Open Door at Church that neglects 3 John. In fact, my prayer this week has been that this small little book will captivate our hearts. And that because of it, we will, we will multiply these devotions that we have been talking about by our cooperation together as brothers and sisters in this church at Open Door, and then through our partnership with like-minded churches so that we will be able to say with the psalmist, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our sight. So let me set the context and then I'll read this short letter. But Here's what's going on. I want you to put yourself in the scene as best you can. This man, Gaius, just imagine you are facing opposition. You are facing people who are harassing you from a supposed Christian leader. And you're probably sitting there wondering, am I living in a way that honors Christ? And am I, what I'm doing with my time and my talents and my treasures, is it worthy of the cause of Christ? And as you're wrestling with this and as you're facing this opposition from, from this other Christian leader... All of a sudden, you receive a letter from a man who has been a godly mentor, a faithful, faithful spiritual father in the faith. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this kind of opposition, you receive this letter. And that's what's happened here in 3 John. So let's read it. And we know that the disciple whom Jesus loved writes this as he's carried along by the Holy Spirit. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I Love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had rather not write you with pen and ink, but I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Let's pray. 
Father, you know that this small book has worked on me. And Father, I pray that my study and hopefully the faithful preaching of it will stir in us. Father, I pray that we'll be captivated by this little book and that you will do through open doors something amazing that we will be able to say, this is the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our sight. And Father, we pray for the multiplication of these devotions. We pray for our own good. We pray for the good of others. We pray for the sake of the lost. We pray for the glory of your name. Father, we pray that because of our testimony and our gospel work, that there will be many other Melanies who will enter into your presence with great confidence and with a good confession. So, Father, would you help us now? Father, what we know not, would you please teach us? Father, what we have not, would you please give us? And, Father, what we are not, would you please make us? Would you now sanctify us in the truth? We know your word is truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I, I grew up with three brothers and no sisters, and we fought all the time. Uh, in fact, my, my poor mom basically lived in a male dormitory. And I still remember one of the biggest fights we ever had. Uh, it was in this after-school program. It was actually at Southeastern Seminary. We were basically in middle school. It was an after-school group that was supervised by my uncle. And on one afternoon, we were playing soccer. And for whatever reason, uh, in the midst of this game, there was two Aiken brothers on one team, two Aiken brothers on the other team. And in the midst of this soccer match, my twin brother and I began to get into a fist fight. Now, given how godly I was at 13, I'm sure he started it. And as we're fighting, we all of a sudden tumble to the ground. And as we go to the ground, what do you think the brother on his team does? Well, he walks over and he kicks me in the back as hard as he can. So what do you think the brother on my team does? He walks over and he punches that brother in the face. And all of a sudden, all four Aiken brothers are on the ground brawling in the middle of this after-school group program. My uncle was an undercover police officer from Atlanta who had just now uh, surrendered to the ministry. And so he loved watching fights, so he just let it happen. <laughs> Until finally an adult walked onto the field and he acted like he was all responsible and made us break it up. You know, as I think back on things like that, on my childhood memories, I cannot help but wonder if my mom's favorite verse must have been sort of an adaptation of Psalm 133.1. How good and pleasant it is when the Aiken brothers dwell in unity. The truth is my mom should want her biological sons to play and participate in things together in unity, but how much more so does our heavenly father desire it among his children to whom he has given a great mission? We are brothers and sisters. This theological truth is testified to in basically every New Testament epistle. And what we are called to in the New Testament is a participatory cooperation in the mission that God has given to his church, a cooperation that extends and that happens not just through local autonomous churches, but among autonomous local churches as we associate or we network together for the sake of the name and the sake of those who do not yet know his grace. And as we think about multiplying these devotions that we have studied so that they would go out for the good of others, 3 John, I believe, provides a picture of the sort of things that both promote and also the things that hinder cooperation among just individual Christians in a local church and also among the churches. 
Third John does so, though we would argue, not just under the banner of New Testament description, but New Testament prescription. In fact, John says there is an oughtness to this kind of work, that we ought to support people like this. And in this book, we will see characters and churches that are commendable in this regard, and we will also see a character and a church that are condemnable in this regard. So I want to consider this morning who we will be as a church, both individually as Christians and incorporately at this church we make up called Open Door when it comes to cooperation. And as we work our way through 3 John, we're going to see what I'm calling the nine C's of cooperation. These sort of things that will help promote the multiplication of these devotions among the nations. And the first two start in verses 1 and 2, and that is that we would be consistent in character and conviction. You'll see John begins this letter, and as we read it, notice his pastoral affection, but do so realizing that pastoral rebuke is coming soon. Here's what he said. It says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. He begins his letter by identifying himself as the elder, which is intriguing to me. Peter does something similar in 1 Peter. He calls himself a fellow elder. And I don't know fully why John and Peter do this. Simply, it may be they're just now pastors of local churches. But it seems interesting to me that these two apostles, actual apostles who are with the Lord Jesus and a part of his inner circle, are happy now in the progress of the New Testament and the unfolding plan of God to identify themselves as fellow elders. This at least highlights to me the precious gift that, that pastors, that shepherds are, how essential they are for the, the progress of the gospel, that God gives his church qualified men to shepherd the flock of God among them, to do so for the care and the benefit and the maturing of their saints, but also so that through them the gospel would be released into the world. And the elder now addresses the recipient of this pastoral letter. He addresses this man named Gaius, and he calls him his beloved. He calls Gaius, who is possibly a pastor or just a prominent member, he calls him his dear friend. He addresses him with fatherly and pastoral affection. And so just know as we begin this letter who Gaius is. The disciple whom Jesus loved, loved this man named Gaius. And we will see why? John's love for his friend, he expresses four times in the text. He calls him beloved. It is shaped by truth. This is not some misplaced sentiment from John. It is a love that is rooted in the truth. For it is so true that we as Christians are to be both head and heart people. This is an appropriate way for us to consider Christian love and Christian relationships. We who have been loved by God through the work of his son are now linked in that love. And that love has as its basis what is most true about the world. It is a great gift then that the Lord gives us, dear friends, that gives us brothers and sisters who have become that to us through the gospel. John not only expresses his love, he also gives this brief prayer of blessing. And listen to this. It's an amazing prayer. He prays that Gaius' physical health would match that of his spiritual health. I want you to hear that again and ask yourself, would you want that prayer answered about you? That your physical health would match your spiritual health. You know, in America, we are obsessed, particularly around the new year, with healthy living. It kind of sort of wanes by August, but at the beginning of a new year, we're obsessed with healthy living. And by we, I don't mean me, as you can tell, but I mean American culture. We're told to exercise daily, to get lots of sleep, to eat 
whole foods to eat organic foods, simply code word for expensive foods. We're told to eat kale. As the prophet Ron Swanson says, that's simply the food that my food eats. Some tell us don't eat processed food, which means no queso. And who wants to live in a world like that? And even some have begun an assault on bacon itself. We are living in the last days indeed. But we must remember what Paul says in another place, that bodily training is of some value. This ver these verses are showing us we don't, don't need to overly swing the pendulum when it comes to the prosperity heresies. It is good and appropriate for us to desire both the physical and spiritual health of our friends and family and certainly our fellow members. All the while understanding exactly what Paul says, that while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. John wants what is best for Gaius in every way, and that is easy to do because he is a man consistent in his conviction and his conduct. He knows the truth. He knows sound doctrine, and he lives by it, and he's so consistent that John asked for his physical health to match his spiritual health as well, which leads to the third C, and he keeps in this vein of talking about consistent conviction and character, but it leads to the third C, which is children. But we should rejoice in and labor for spiritual Children, here's what he says. For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John is a wonderful spiritual father and pastor. He rejoices at hearing the testimony from some of his members about his friend Gaius. This reminds me of one of the first pictures of cooperation and interchurch relationship in the scriptures. In Acts, Barnabas is sent by the church at Jerusalem. They hear something is going on for the cause of the Lord in Antioch. And so the church at Jerusalem sends one of their members, Barnabas, down to check out what's going on. And it says, when Barnabas got there, it says he saw the grace of God and he was glad. Brothers and sisters, this sort of attitude, this idea of being glad at what the Lord is doing in and through others is the sort of thing that fosters cooperation for the sake of mission when we want other people to flourish and not just ourselves. Brother and sister, I've been around Open Door now for about 15 years, and one of the reasons I love this church, why I came back here and why I came to work for the Pillar Network is that Open Door is not a competitive church with other local churches in the area. In fact, Open Door is happy to send out members to help other churches locally and globally and to see the grace of God in others and to be glad at it. And we can see why it's easy to be glad at the flourishing of a man like Gaius. Because here you might say of Gaius what's said of Timothy and Acts. He is, he is well spoken of by the brothers. He is well spoken of because he is walking in the truth. Or to say it another way, his belief and his behavior match. The importance of our fidelity, both in our life and character and in our doctrine, cannot be overstated for our cooperation, for our own Christian walk. Consistently in the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, there is this connection between right belief and right behavior. You might say the fact that our creed and our conduct match. And it's, it's vital to our own Christian maturity, but it's also vital to healthy cooperation as well as model leadership. And upon hearing this testimony, it brings great joy to the Apostle John. Indeed, John pulls for others. He pulls for those for whom he has mentored and whom he has multiplied himself in. And just as we take great joy in seeing our physical children prosper, I mean, Kelsey and I were overjoyed when Ada began to walk. 
Even when she would do it clumsily and fall down, we took great joy in that. And that is what the Apostle John is doing here in his spiritual son, a son whom he has likely played a pivotal role in his coming to faith and in his equipping for ministry. He has great joy that he has multiplied himself in a man who is consistent in sound doctrine and in sound character. And those are the sort of relationships we want in cooperation as well. We want to work with churches that are sound in doctrine and sound in character. And this is not just the role of the pastors. It's the role, as we saw last week, of every Christian. It's appropriate given that third graders are with us for the first time as a group this week. We who are parents should desire the flourishing and the maturity of our physical children, but all of us who are Christians should seek to have spiritual children whom we have poured our lives into. We have gone with the gospel and are trying to shape them so that they in turn can also multiply these devotions. The text pivots a little bit with the fourth C, and the fourth C is care. John now gives us an example of why Gaius is so commendable in truth and love, and it is one of those areas of this book that I hope characterizes every single member of Open Door. Here's what he says, and these, these are amazing verses. These may be some of the best verses in all the New Testament about the support of missionaries. John says this, Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are who testified to your love before the church, you will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have, they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. One of the reasons that Gaius is commendable for walking in truth is connected to his support of missionaries. Indeed, this work is a faithful thing done by a faithful man for faithful brothers. In fact, he has worked hard in this effort, and he's worked hard to be generous, to care for missionaries so that he can help spur on the mission. And we will see in a minute, John likely wrote a letter to the church instructing this kind of work, instructing this kind of labor. And Gaius, if he is a pastor, he is a good elder because he is not greedy for gain, but he is hospitable and a lover of good. He is generous, not just to his friends. He is generous to gospel strangers who are on assignment. And for those of us that know the book of Hebrews, we know the mystery of showing hospitality to strangers. For by so doing, some have entertained angels unaware. They have interestingly entertained messengers unaware. Because of Gaius' care, these unknown brothers add their testimony to John's. They come before the church and they speak of Gaius' love. I want to take just a moment of application. This is a church that sends out missionaries, a church that sends out church planters. I think implicitly in this text, we see the role and the importance of the local church in sending. Thus, we talk about the importance and the role of the local church in your own life. If you have eyes to see, we see the central role the local church plays in the life of those that are sent. And we see the relationship between the churches here, those associating and cooperating among churches for the sake of the name. These missionaries, John's missionaries, return likely to John's church. They gather the congregation together, and these missionaries testify to the great things that God has done, which includes the care that they have been shown by Gaius. So verse 6, John says, send them on their way in a manner worthy of the one they have gone out to serve. My dad argues that the worthy of God likely modifies both the work of Gaius and the work of the missionaries, as what Gaius is doing to care for them is worthy of God, and certainly what these missionaries are doing and going out is worthy of God. What we are doing as we send out and care and give to missionaries is worthy of God. 
The word send them on is a Greek word, propempo, which carries the idea of being sent with provisions for the next part of the journey. And that is an appropriate definition for the type of missions and cooperation and church planting that we want to do as we send missionaries all over the world. We send them on to the next part of their journey with provisions for the task. In fact, it's interesting, Paul, in Romans 15, 24, when he's talking about going to to share the gospel, to, to speak of Christ where he has not already been named, in Romans 15, 24, as he expresses his desire to come to the church at Rome so they will send him on to Spain, he uses this exact same word. And it's a wonderful picture of cooperation among churches. Just think about this. It's a wonderful picture of what happens as churches cooperate for the good of other missionaries. Romans then is not just a theological treatise. It is the greatest theological treatise, but it is more than that. It is a missionary track. Paul sends the letter to the church at Rome because he is hoping that eventually Antioch will send him to Rome and then Rome in their kindness will send him on to the next part of his journey with provisions for the task. They will send him on to Spain for the sake of the Spaniards. And both what Paul is doing and the church at Rome and the church at Antioch, all of it is worthy of God. Which leads probably to the most importancy of healthy cooperation. And that is concern for the name or concern for the cause. Verse 7, they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Why is what Gaius and these missionaries doing worthy of God? It is worthy because of the cause they have. Kenneth talked about this some last week. They have gone out for the sake of that name that is to be named above all names. They have gone out like Paul and Barnabas from the church at Antioch on a great mission. It has similar connotations to what happens with with Peter and James and John as they go out from the council, listen to this, rejoicing because they have been counted worthy to suffer for the name. We do this, brothers and sisters. We give our lives to this cause. We support those who do. We do this not relying, as we see here in the text, we don't rely on funding from the unconverted. Instead, we do all of this because our God is worthy of global praise. Which leads to the sixth C, where we see this command to cooperation and further care. Look at verse 8 again. Therefore, in light of all this, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. John says... We ought to support people like this. People like we sent out last week, the Nakia Moors, people like Yamin Park and his family, other planters. We do so, and we do so with a purpose. There's a reason here, and the reason is connected to the cause, that we, that we who help send them, listen to this, become fellow workers for the truth. It is then a good adage, not all go, but all help send And because of the greatness of the cause, there is an obligation to this work. These brothers, these workers have gone out in a sacrificial way for a great task. We then who love them ought to support them in a sacrificial way worthy of that great task. And in so doing, there is this tremendous foundation for why. For in so doing, we become fellow workers with them in spreading the truth everywhere. In a sense... Their labors become our labors. Their struggles become our struggles. And their victories become our victories. All of this is done not for the glory of ourselves and not for the glory of these fellow workers. We will see this as a temptation in a minute. No, all of this is done for the praise of somebody else. Cooperation for multiplying these devotions through the starting and strengthening of churches is not just the work then of the church planter or the missionary. It is the work of all Christians. For by so doing, we become co-laborers with them 
on their way. So think about it like this. Even if you never go to Ann Arbor, but you support the guyers who have, you are a fellow worker for the eternal joy of those who would identify themselves as Wolverines. If you never go to South Asia, but you support those who do, you are working right now to labor among those who right now, 950 million Hindus who worship, they worship more gods than we can count. And there's one God that is worthy of their praise. And when we send people to the Middle East, we support those who do. We are working and laboring on beside and on behalf of those right now who are laboring among a billion Muslims who fast and pray five times a day and give alms to the poor because they think it'll make them right with God, and it will not. Allah is not worthy of their praise. But there is a name that is worthy of their praise. As I considered how to drive home how awesome and worthy this task is, I kept coming back to this one letter. And it's a letter written by the great Baptist missionary Adoniram Judson. He, he wrote this to the man he hoped would become his father-in-law as he was asking for this man's daughter's hand in marriage and for her to join him as he headed off to India for the sake of the name. And given that I think this book is about cooperation among churches, it's appropriate. Judson, because of his missionary task, rallied Baptist churches to support the mission. And because of their supporting of the mission, other Baptist networks started, like the Southern Baptist Convention eventually. And here's what he wrote. To his soon-to-be father-in-law. He said, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure to a heathen land and her subjection to the hardships and suffering of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Listen to the gospel motivation. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home, who died for her and for you? Who died for the sake of perishing immortal souls, who died for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this and hope? Assume meeting your daughter in the world of glory with a crown of righteousness brightened by the acclamations of praise which shall resound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. Brothers and sisters, it's hard for me to read that. The day I posted that into my sermon manuscript, my two-year-old was sitting right there trying to act like her dad. She was fake typing on a computer. I'm absolutely convinced that he who left his heavenly home is worthy of her life. Third graders who have joined us this morning, I am absolutely convinced that Jesus is worthy of your life. Students, adults, I'm convinced that Jesus is worthy of your life. And Ada Schaefer, Aiken, I'm absolutely convinced that Jesus is worthy of your life.
And when we support people like this, people who are commendable in character and in conviction, and we support them in this great task, we become fellow workers with them. It is my prayer that we will be generous in this task and we will also consider whether we should go. The letter now takes a sharp turn and it now begins to highlight the things that can be a hindrance to cooperation. And the seventh C, I had to stretch a little bit to make a C, but bear with me. The seventh C is that we must not be conceited. John says this, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he is doing, talking wicked nonsense against us, and not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. We're introduced to this man named Diotrephes. We don't know if he's a fellow elder with Gaius. We don't know if he's a pastor nearby. We don't know if he's just an unruly member who's prominent. But we do see another facet of John's pastoral care. We see now how John deals with wolves. My dad, I think, puts it like this, as now one of the sons of thunder responds in keeping with his name. He has apparently written a previous letter to the church about supporting gospel workers, but Diotrephes has ignored it. John says he does not acknowledge our authority. Likely he sees John's authority as a challenge to what he perceives as his own authority. In fact, there's a reason he refuses it. He wants to be first, or he loves having the preeminence. So he will have nothing to do with John. He will have nothing to do with John's missionaries. And we see Diotrephes stands in stark contrast to Gaius. Gaius welcomes the brothers. Diotrephes does not. Gaius loves to serve. Diotrephes loves to be first. And whereas we see that charity and humility promote unity and cooperation, competition and pride are massive threats to gospel partnership. Diotrephes, you might say, is like the Pharisees. He loves the seats of honor. He is about his name and not the name. He is about his glory and not the king's glory. He wants the spotlight. He wants the platform. He wants the following. He wants the recognition. He loves the seats of honor. Brothers and sisters, we must not confuse zeal for the cause of Christ with our own personal ambition. If we evaluate ourselves in light of God's great mission and in light of His great grace, it will humble us. We must have sober judgment of ourselves. We must not think more highly of ourselves in God's work than we ought. Paul tells us in another place very simply that God has given this treasure to jars of clay. seems instructive to me that in this letter where anonymous brothers are commended who have gone out for the sake of another, that there is one who wants his own recognition who is condemned. May our posture be that of Count Zinzendorf who simply said, may we preach the gospel, die and be forgotten. Forgotten in this life only to receive a crown in the next. Diotrephe so badly wants preeminence that he badmouths John. In a sense, he becomes an accuser of the brothers. And not content with stopping there, he actively works against these gospel workers. And not content stopping there, he actually excommunicates those who have become fellow workers for the truth. The spirit of Diotrephes is one that is content in stopping gospel work that doesn't bring one's own self glory. It's one that is content with gossiping and subtly tearing down others in order to make yourself look better or feel more important. May we remember that God is pleased to use the humble and God is pleased to humble the proud. In fact, humility in the work is massive to the cause, which is why Satan so often tempts us to pride. And pride has never been more of a temptation than it is in our selfie culture. 
May we be humble servants. In light of this, John then gives an exhortation to Gaius, and this is the eighth C, that we would be commendable. Look at verse 11. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. John here wants us to see the dichotomy of the faithful and unfaithful. He wants us to walk the path of the faithful. He is possibly worried that Diotrephes' behavior will influence Gaius. So he says, in keeping with Paul in other places, imitate what is good, for by so doing you will reveal which path you are on, whether you are from God or sadly as with Diotrephes, is likely showing that you do not know God at all. And in contrast, John turns to another commendable character, one who some scholars believe may be the carrier of this letter to Gaius. Look at who he is. Verse 12, Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. We are introduced to Demetrius. He gets only one verse in the Bible, and yet what a verse it is. It's possible he's either a missionary himself, and John is saying, you ought to support people like these, or he is one who has supported missionaries generously, and John is saying, imitate him. Either way, unlike Diotrephes, he is worthy of imitation because instead of denying the brother, he, like Gaius, is well spoken of by them. He has received a good testimony from everyone. He is also consistent in his creed and conduct to the point that even the truth itself has given him a good testimony. And finally, he is well spoken of by John, who it seems Gaius knows does not just throw out those kind of commendations lightly. Essentially what John is saying, or how we may say it in our day, you know so-and-so is such a good brother. You know so-and-so is such a sweet sister. And for our applications, this purposes this morning, let's just say commendable brothers and sisters are easy to partner with. They are easy to love. So may we be those kind of brothers and sisters who are sound in doctrine, who are commendable in our conviction and in our, in our character. For by so doing, we reveal whether we are from God or we have never seen God. He concludes the letter as he began with hope and a brief prayer of blessing. He says this, I had much to write you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. John is essentially saying, Gaius, I've just given you the cliff notes. I have much more to say, but when I come to deal with diatrophies, I would rather have your physical presence. He wants to be in the presence of his dear friend. And then he concludes this small letter with a brief prayer, a prayer of a blessing of peace. Peace be to you. And then he says, and it's the only time in the New Testament that believers are called friends, don't fully know why, but you again hear his pastoral tone, the personal nature of his pastoral ministry. He says, the friends greet you. Greet the friends and greet them by their name. Know who they are. So in light of 3 John, some practical applications. Number one, I just want to say help us plant healthy churches. Help open door, plant healthy churches. This is central to the Great Commission. Through the work of this church, through the work of the Pillar Network, this is why Pillar exists, to help us send out missionaries to plant healthy churches because God has chosen the local church as his means by which he is accomplishing his purposes in the world. So all we want to do is, is scatter the world with these little outposts of the kingdom called the local church so that then they themselves will plant other outposts and on and on and on we will send out ambassadors for his name until we see him face to face. Number two, pray regularly for missionaries and church planters. We have lots here. We have lists we keep. We'd love for you to come to us and ask, and we will help you find 
different missionaries and church planters to pray for. Go on mission trips. It's a great way for you to capture a vision of what the Lord is doing in the world. Give to the mission of the church and the cause of missions around the world. The command or the oughtness of supporting missionaries is a command for every Christian, but the supporting of this particular local church is primarily for our members. And just know, we give a lot of money away to missions. We give a lot of money away to church planting. The elders were happy with me to share this. We are currently about $85,000 behind budget for the year. So please consider how you might be obedient and faithful to give to the cause of Christ and the work of this church through this local area, but also as it extends to the end of the earth. And then final application, may we look to the final C of this book. You know, when it comes to all the things that we've seen about Gaius and Demetrius and Diotrephes, we're going to fail in these areas. Even these practical applications, we're going to fail at times. And we need the work of another. You see, what's amazing about this short letter, it's, it's an interesting one. There are main characters in this book, like John and like Gaius and like Demetrius, even Diotrephes. But for a New Testament letter, there is one that is obviously missing. In fact, he is a subtle character, never mentioned by name, and yet he is the very one who gives us the example to imitate these eight things, but also the one who gives us the power to do so, and also more than that, even the forgiveness when we don't. For you see, brothers and sisters, we have a great great high priest whose name is love. That God would look upon him and say, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And now because of his work, he has made us beloved sons and daughters of the triune God. The one who went out for the sake of the name, doing the works of the one who sent him. The one, as Jude will tell us in just one book over, listen to this, how wonderful this is. The one who is able to present us blameless before the presence and glory of God. And to do so, listen to this, with great Joy, for fact, he has no greater joy than to hear that his children are walking in the truth, blameless before the presence of God. The one who would provide for his workers all they need, who for the sake of his workers, who though he were rich would become poor so that we by his poverty might become rich. The one who is the friend of sinners, the prince of peace who shows up after the resurrection in the midst of his brothers. And what is the first thing he says to them right before Thomas would doubt him? He says, peace be unto you. The one who calls his sheep by name. And we, his sheep, go out for the sake of his name so that we might be fellow workers for the truth. And it is important for us to remember this morning that the truth is ultimately not a set of propositions. No, the truth has DNA and the truth has fingernails and it has a blood type and the truth has a name. Jesus of Nazareth, who has thrown down the accuser of our brothers at the cross, who at the cross, as we have already read in 1 John, has become our propitiation, literally meaning at the cross, he has satisfied the wrath of God due sin. He stood there in our place and satisfied the judgment that we would do because of our sins. And he gives over to us his righteousness. And in so doing, he takes away the accusations of the enemy. He takes away the final consequence of sin, death itself, as on the third day, God showed that he was satisfied with his sacrifice because he raised him from the dead, vindicated, and he is now forming a family of brothers and sisters, a family we call the church, the household of God, and we will send out fellow workers all over the world to carry this great news everywhere. And he 
and not Diotrephes and not us will have the preeminence. He will be first. But what's so wonderful about him is that the one that will have the preeminence is also the one who has showed us the way of humility. Here's how much he humbled himself. God became a man. He did not just become a man. The sovereign became a servant. And the king went to a cross. So I love this poem from Charles Ross Weed as we move to close. It captures the differences between Jesus and Alexander the Great. I pray that it will help distinguish us from Diotrephes. Here's what he writes. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self. One died for you and me. The Greek died on a throne. The Jew died on a cross. One's life a triumph seemed, the other but a loss. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon. One died on Calvary. One gained all for himself. And one himself he gave. One conquered every throne. The other every grave. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves. The Jew made all men free. One built a throne on blood, the other built on love. The one was born of earth, the other from above. One won all the earth, only to lose all earth and heaven. The other gave up all that all to him be given. The Greek forever died. The Jew forever lives. He loses all who gets and wins all things who gives. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we want you to know this humble king is able to give you what is rightfully his. He's able to give you a kingdom to transfer you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved son. He is able to give you his righteousness, a righteousness that is not your own so that you might be right with God. And the way you take hold of what he has done is by repentance and faith, by humbling yourself and admitting you cannot save yourself and turning to him in trust. If that's you, we would love to talk with you about what it means to turn to him. Believers, what an immense privilege we have to serve this king and to do so as a family, as brothers and sisters. You know, my brothers and I got into it a lot growing up. I'm fairly certain we won that fight, by the way. But now I'm incredibly close with my brothers. All of them are in gospel ministry. We, we text almost every single day. In fact, I do almost everything I can to make sure my brothers flourish. And I would appeal to you this morning, if that is true for biological brothers, how much more should, so should it be true for those of us, as Aristides said, and I said this as a quote in the first sermon of the series, how much more so should it be true of those of us who are brothers not bound by blood ties, but brothers who are after the Spirit and in God? Who knows what might happen because of our lives together as open door? Who knows what might happen because of our cooperation with other churches? It may just be that years from now, there will be a network of like-minded churches in places like Saudi Arabia and North Korea who are studying 3 John, wondering how they might send missionaries to America for the good and sake and the eternal joy of our grandchildren. We do not know what will happen if we look like 3 John. What we do know is this. It will be worthy of God because we'll be fellow workers for the truth. And the truth has a name. Jesus of Nazareth, the friend of sinners.
who knows of those of us who are his, and he knows us by our name. Let's pray and then let's sing to this great king who has saved us. Father, we thank you for this little book. We do pray that I do pray that this church will be captivated by it. So would you help us now, Father? We need the work of your spirit. Would you change us from one degree of glory to another? Father, would you use the singing, the prayer, the preaching, the fellowship? Would you use it all to make us look more like Jesus? May we look like him in every way. Father, would you do amazing things in and through us? And may we be able to look back and say, this is the Lord's doing. And it is marvelous in our eyes. Glorify yourself in our midst, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.